to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week, we're going to be looking at the case of Isilla Henderson and Dorset Healthcare University NHS Foundation Trust. The citation for this case is 2020 UKFC 43. Now, in last week's episode of the podcast, we considered the principle of ex terpe causa, which is the idea that a person's illegal actions should act as a bar to a civil claim. The law in this area was significantly changed in 2016 by the case of Patel and Mirza, and last week we saw this change affirmed in the case of Stoffel & Co and Grandona. I have episodes on both of those cases, so feel free to check them out on uklawweekly.com. This week the Supreme Court once again had an opportunity to address questions arising in this context, but the facts of this case were drastically different. Henderson suffers from a form of paranoid schizophrenia, and during the fateful months of August 2010, she was under the care of Dorset Healthcare, the other party to this case. Around the 13th of August, Henderson's condition began to deteriorate, and on the 25th, she sadly stabbed her own mother to death during a serious psychotic episode. She was tried and convicted of manslaughter by reason of diminished responsibility, with the judge commenting that Henderson did not bear a significant degree of responsibility for what she had done. The sentence was, appropriately enough, a hospital order where she will be able to receive long-term treatment. That is the illegal activity in this case, but what is the civil claim that calls to mind ex terpi causa? Well, through her litigation-friendly official solicitor, a claim for negligence was brought against Dorset Healthcare. In response, Dorset Healthcare admitted that they were negligent, but that the claim should be barred for reasons of illegality. To put it another way, Henderson should not be allowed to claim damages because she stabbed her mother to death. Both the High Court and the Court of Appeal accepted this argument, and so Mrs Henderson appealed to the Supreme Court, which is where we pick things up. Before we jump right into the judgment, it is worth mentioning why Henderson's claim was dismissed in the lower courts. In 2009, the House of Lords decided the case of Grey and Thames trains that followed a similar pattern. The claimant, Gray, suffered psychiatric injury after a train crash that was caused by the negligence of Thames trains. He would go on to kill someone because of this and claimed compensation from the company. The House of Lords decided that the claim must be barred for illegality, and due to the similarity in the facts between that case and the current proceedings brought by Henderson, the lower courts felt that they had no choice but to apply the precedent-setting authority. This meant that the first question for the Supreme Court to answer was whether Gray could be distinguished on the facts of the case. The argument put forward by Henderson was that it should be distinguished because of the difference in personal responsibility when it came to the illegal activities of the respective claimants. Whereas Gray bore significant personal responsibility for his actions, you will remember that the judge in Henderson's case stated that she bore very little personal responsibility for killing her mother due to the nature of the psychotic episode. The seven justices of the Supreme Court who heard this case did not buy that distinction. For them, the key question is whether the claimant was criminally responsible, not the degree of personal responsibility that they exercised at the time of the act. In other words, because in both cases the claimant had committed a criminal act and been sentenced by a judge, the cases could not be distinguished. That was not the end of things though, because as we said, Gray was decided in 2009, but the law in this area was significantly changed in 2016, thanks to the case of Patel and Mirza. As the highest court in the land, the Supreme Court could potentially overrule the previous House of Lords decision in Gray, 
and so that was the next request made by Henderson. In order to answer this, we need to review the changes in the law instigated by Patel and Mirza. I won't go into too much detail because it is only a week since we last did this, but there is essentially a three-part test for the court to consider. Firstly, what was the underlying purpose of the law that was broken, and would that purpose be advanced in some way if the claim was denied? Secondly, the court should consider if there are any other areas of public policy that might be impacted if the claim is denied. And finally, there is a balancing act where the court must decide if barring the claim is a proportionate response to the illegality in question. Henderson argued that the application of this newer test was incompatible with the older case of Gray, but the justices did not agree. After reviewing Gray, they noted that the reasoning was compatible with Patel and Mirza, and so the 2009 case remains good law. In fact, they went on to note that the test in Patel is fundamentally derived from the previous case law, and so older cases relating to illegality are not to be simply thrown out unless they are in direct contradiction to the more modern approach. The second argument by Henderson comes back to the idea that Gray should not apply when the claimant does not have significant personal responsibility for their actions. To some extent we have already covered this when looking to see if the two cases could be distinguished, but it is worth saying again here that the Supreme Court rejected this because the important thing is that the claimant was convicted and sentenced for an intentional criminal act. Even beyond this there is an issue that this would potentially cause an inconsistency in the law. That is because a person who is regarded as a criminal in one half of the legal system would then be considered a victim in the civil half. It also puts the onus on the civil courts to make an assessment of criminal responsibility, and it is not clear how they would even do this, never mind if their decision conflicted with the conclusion in criminal proceedings and undermined that result. The third and final argument advanced by Henderson was that the test in Patel should be applied to her case instead of purely relying on Gray. The first part of that test requires the court to consider the policy around the law that was broken by the claimant. Clearly, the law prohibiting unlawful killing is pretty significant and drives at some of the key points around the law and morality. It is not only a serious offence, but it is arguably one of the most serious offences. With that in mind, there are also good public policy reasons for not allowing a claim from someone who has committed such an act. Killing never pays is not a bad message for the courts to send out. There are also other policy considerations that are related much more closely to the facts of this case. For example, the case is being brought against an NHS trust, and there is a public interest in preserving their limited resources. Finally, unlike in last week's case of Stoffel and Co. and Grandona, here there is a much closer relationship between the criminal act and the civil claim launched by the claimant. Moving on to the second string of the test in Patel, the only other significant and more general policy area to consider is the inconsistency in the legal system that allowing the claim to proceed might end up producing. This is yet another thing that points away from allowing Henderson's appeal. The final part of the test is to carry out a balancing act amongst the various public policy factors and decide the case based on proportionality. Here the factors almost exclusively pointed towards the NHS trust side, and so the Supreme Court decided that denying Henderson's claim on the basis of illegality would not be disproportionate. 
As we begin our own analysis of this case, I feel the need to get into the festivus spirit with the justices of the Supreme Court and announce that I've got a lot of problems with you people. Now you're going to hear about it. If we remember back, the first step that was taken by the justices was to note that the lower courts were correct in their approach so far as equating the facts of the case in grey with the current proceedings. On the surface, it is true that the facts of each case do appear remarkably similar. A claimant who would have the prospect of a civil case but for their illegal action of taking the life of another. However, the argument from Henderson is an important one and does point to a key distinction that probably should have been made. In Grey, the claimant was much more responsible for their actions compared to Henderson, who was suffering from a serious schizophrenic episode at the time. The result was the same because an innocent person lost their life, but I think there is a fundamental distinction in law that the Supreme Court overlooked. After all, the level of personal responsibility that a defendant has for a crime can swing a trial one way or another. That is why we have mens rea. Nevertheless, I think the main issue with this judgment is that in that key case of Patel and Mirza, Lord Tolson referred to the change that was being wrought as a revolutionary step. Yet now, only a few years later, the Supreme Court is happy to apply the old case law as if nothing happened. Their justification for this was that Patel derived from some of the principles set out in that old case law, and so it was more a progression than a revolution. Unfortunately, that just doesn't quite add up. If Patel really gave authority to a change in the law, then this is the new test that should be applied. To be fair, the Supreme Court did attempt to apply Patel to the current proceedings, but they just didn't do a great job, and it felt more like they were forcing the various considerations in so that they would match up with their preordained conclusion. It is worth taking a few minutes to go through the three-part test again and try to see it with fresh eyes. The first part looks at the policy considerations around the law that was broken, and naturally the justices focused on the pretty obvious notion that unlawful killing is bad and something to be discouraged. All of that is true, but there is also an important distinction to be drawn between someone who kills while suffering from a psychotic episode and outright murder. Is barring this civil claim going to discourage people from having psychotic episodes in the future? Of course not. On the other hand, if the NHS Trust is made to be liable, then it may well make them more wary of negligently failing to take proper care of their mental health patients in the future. Under this first part of the test, the Supreme Court also noted that the claim and the illegal activity are closely related here. But given what we have already discussed, that fact is only incidental to the overall judgment. The second part of the test seeks to also consider other relevant policy areas, and here the justices raised concerns about a possible inconsistency that might arise between criminal and civil law. To be honest, this is definitely not as massive an issue as the court makes out. If there is a divergence between the conclusions in a criminal and civil case, then this does not render one of those judgments null and void. Any law student will be able to tell you that each system requires different levels of proof, and so it is not impossible for us to say that Henderson was criminally responsible for her actions, and sentenced accordingly, but also to say at the same time that her level of personal responsibility was not sufficient enough to warrant barring her claim in the civil courts. The final part of the test is about proportionality and is quite difficult to judge. 
However, the lack of a deterrence for the illegal activity in question, combined with the importance of holding public health institutions responsible for their negligence, seems to point towards allowing Henderson's claim to proceed. So how can me and the Supreme Court apply the exact same legal test and come up with two completely different conclusions? Well, in last week's episode, we talked about how one of the problems is that policy considerations are remarkably broad in their scope and are wide open to interpretation. This has the unfortunate effect of undermining certainty in the law and allows the Supreme Court to reach their foregone conclusion. That conclusion is frankly a bad one because it demonstrates a lack of sympathy and understanding when it comes to mental health issues. In that sense, it is a dangerous and worrying precedent. Hopefully you don't think that my own thoughts in this case are that we should simply do away with ex terpi causa completely. It does still have an important role to play. If a thief slips on something in a shopping aisle as they are trying to run away, then there is a good reason not to allow the thief's claim for damages. The test from Patel and Mirza is generally a good and important step in the law because it offers judges a degree of flexibility that simply was not previously there. However, we have to acknowledge that it is also new and requires some further development. A case like the present one would have been a perfect opportunity to do this, but instead the court not only failed to apply the test properly, it also regressed in its views. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this podcast episode, and thanks as ever to bensound.com for the theme music. I have to apologise because I've not been through the iTunes reviews in a while, and it was great to log on and see some more people had left 5-star ratings. Special thanks to Loftrat, SMRITI underscore SG, and PBHNG. I know I keep saying this, but the reviews make a real difference to our visibility, and I truly appreciate each and every person who takes the time to post a 5-star rating. Speaking of which, some of you will have been checking your Spotify wrapped for 2020 this week, and we also get one for podcasters too. That is how I found out that UK Law Weekly is in the top 100 news podcasts, which is pretty stunning considering that we're up against organisations like the BBC, LBC and all of the various newspapers who each have their own podcasts. Finally, I will drop the new link to the email newsletter in the podcast description. As a reminder, there is a free version, but also a paid version that grants you access to loads of bonus content and helps to keep the podcast up and running. This week, subscribers got to learn more about the new Sentencing Act and the British Army's close involvement with death squads. So if that sounds interesting, then do take the time to find out more. Okay, that's everything. I'll be back with another episode next week. But for now, bye!